Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where we're going to be taking a look ahead to some of the events that are going to be moving markets and making news in the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. That means oil prices, interest rates, and Brexit jobs. I'm joined by Emily Gosden, Energy Editor of The Times, Harry Wilson, our City Editor, and Cullen Jones, The Times Markets Reporter. Thank you all for being here and welcome. Emily, let's start with you. Royal Dutch Shell, we've heard their results. What stood out for you? Was there a surprise in there? I don't think there was any huge surprises. If you look at their headline profits, they were bang on with what the city was forecasting. I guess the results really underline just how big an impact the higher oil prices had this year. If you think back to January 2016, oil was trading down below $30 a barrel. By the end of last year, it was it was back up above 60 And Shell's sort of underlying profits, when you strip out all the one-off charges and things and accounting charges, were up by about $8.5 billion, more than double last year's, of which $5 billion was basically just due to higher oil and gas prices. So it has a huge impact. The only real surprise to the downside, as far as some of the analysts were concerned, was that cash flow was a bit lighter than they had expected. Shell has been looking to make sure it can increase its free cash flow so that it can resume share buybacks. And, and at first, it's got to pay down its debt, which amassed quite a debt pile following the acquisition of BG Group. So there were a few concerns that because the cash wasn't as strong as expected, the debt was still higher than expected, that maybe it wouldn't be heading into those share buybacks as, as soon as had been hoped. Um, but I mean, the executive speaking earlier, Ben Van Burden, chief execs, was saying they were obsessed with starting the buybacks as soon as possible. So I think they've been trying to, to reassure that. The, the interesting thing really that stood out for me, I guess, was uh, about just the enthusiasm they've got for for expanding into this new energies division, they call it, which is all about green energy. Um, You know, a few years ago, they were all playing down the the threat of renewables and now they're throwing lots of money into it. It's this early seed corn stage. I mean, presumably if a company like Shell moves into it, it can move in with enough to fund our research and development to a reasonable level. It's not scrimping around for the odd million or so, is it? I mean, it can go in big. Are there any signs that it will become a major player or is it still at the edge of, if you like, renewable energies? It's a funny thing because if you look at the context of Shell, it's such a massive company that in the context of Shell, the amount of money they're putting into this new energies division, one to two billion dollars a year, you know, they're investing 25 to 30 billion dollars a year. So for Shell, it's small. But actually, if you look at the context of how much money people are investing in green energy in general, that's a pretty big number. And, you know, they're saying that 
effectively for them, it, green energy is like a startup business and they cannot think of any other company that's investing anything like that amount at a startup level. They have been on a bit of a spending spree already over the last few months. Um, they picked up First Utility, which is the biggest household energy supplier taking on the big six in the UK. And they also have picked up an electric vehicle business and then just the other week have bought into a big US solar company. So they're, they're throwing quite serious money around, yeah. Emily, you mentioned the obviously the pickup in the oil price, and I think it's just under what Brent crude's under what just about seventy dollars a barrel at the moment, roughly. And uh, obviously, BP and Shell shares have both kind of tracked its trajectory over the last year or so, and I think they've reached a, both reached a two-year high earlier this month. I just wondered what the companies are now saying about where they think Brent and the oil price is going to go this year. Are they quite bullish? Ben Van Burden this morning refused to put a number on it, always does. Um, I guess regards it probably quite rightly as a bit of a mugs game uh, to do so. He, however, said he thought he saw the fundamentals in the market sort of still strengthening. So supply and demand kind of coming back into balance and, and that leading to broadly prices ticking up a bit. But he doesn't seem to buy this theory that we're, uh, we've seen such a drop off in investment that we're going to suddenly see another price spike in a few years time. It'll be interesting to see what Bob Dudley, BP, has to say about this when they report next week. I mean, Bob was the one who over the course of last year was, was pinning himself to a few different forecasts of sort of oil being range bound between, I think he started off at 45 to $55 a barrel and then it became sort of 50 to, to 60. And, you know, with oil having been up near a 70, it'd be interesting to see whether he's had a rethink. Harry, can I bring you in here? What strikes me is that we have, Emily's just been talking to me earlier about the fact that America is producing near record levels of shale oil and gas the world's tanker farms are full. So if there is so much spare capacity still in the global system, how come we can sustain prices? We're talking around, as Goldman Sachs' recent report did, possibly $70 a barrel. Um, well, it's, it's all going to be about uh, what the demand is out there and obviously the, the world with the, the amount of expansion you've got going on. I mean, obviously, uh, the UK is recording at the moment somewhat slower growth than our international competitors, but broadly, globally, you're seeing a, a worldwide boom. And in that context, it's not particularly surprising that you'd start to see that obviously reflected in the oil price. I mean, you know, China alone, you have uh, the expansion there, but, uh, but also, you know, uh, looking across uh, the emerging markets, India, Brazil, and then obviously looking closer to home, you know, Western Europe is is back on the the growth trail again. So, so in that kind of global context, it's really not that surprising that you would start to see that reflected in in uh, worldwide energy markets. I mean, just looking sort of closer to home on a sort of somewhat different point, but I mean, uh, the the interesting thing here, obviously, for financial markets uh, or sort of more stock markets, is going to be the question of what this means for the Aramco IPO. Now, obviously, one of the reasons why the Saudi Arabian authorities were originally looking at privatization of Ramco. So, you know, for those who don't know about this, but this is the what would be the world's largest ever stock market listing, you know, at least a valuation of over a trillion pounds for this uh, Saudi uh, state energy company. But with uh, with oil prices going the way they are, there is a question now whether the Saudis actually need to do this IPO. Obviously, they, they have always said that there are reasons for doing it other than just getting the money. But uh, it seems a sort of a, a reasonable point now to ask whether part of the differing that the Saudis have over where they're going to list is actually more of a question of whether they should list. I, I think, I mean, obviously, Emily would know far more about this than me, but my, my sense is maybe 
possibly you're starting to see a, a cooling in the idea of a listing, maybe looking at slightly different options other than a full privatisation. But um, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Are you getting that sense too, Emily, that in fact the spike in oil price, and we've had uh, just a recent note from none other than Goldman Sachs saying that they reckon it can easily be sustained at 70. I was just thinking when you were talking earlier about Shell going up from sort of 40s to 50s, now we're talking $70. Presumably it does mean that Saudi Aramco may be, as Harry said, bailed out at the last moment. No need to have this row between New York, London and anywhere else that's pitching for it. Well, that is the conundrum, exactly as, as Harry was saying, that on the one hand, in order to get a decent valuation for Aramco, they needed oil prices to be high. On the other hand, higher oil prices reduces the need for the, the IPO in, in the first place. I guess some of the people you speak to about this say, actually, the pure need for cash was was not the sole motivation for, for the IPO. And this is about diversification of the economy. And you know, the higher the oil price, the easier it is for them to diversify, not least because if Aramco is still raking in cash because oil prices are higher and their budget is not so constrained, then they don't have to start sort of making these painful cuts to sort of the welfare system and these other things at the same time as sort of diversifying other aspects of the economy. So higher oil prices should make their job easier. But, you know, it also does raise the question maybe that they have more options at looking at um, a direct deal with Chinese investors and other people has been talked about. There are so many political issues still hanging over the, the possibility of an IPO that you can see other options becoming more attractive. All right, well, we'll leave that there for the moment. Let's sit tight and we'll be back in a minute. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now, we've got a super Thursday coming up in the city. This is when the Bank of England springs into action. Harry, let me get you to explain um, in a minute what super Thursday actually means to us all. But uh, let's listen here to what Governor Mark Carney had to say at the last time he was out on super Thursday. Of course, these aren't normal times. Brexit will redefine the UK's relationship with our largest trade and investment partner, and it will have consequences for the movement of goods services, people, and capital, as well as the real incomes of UK households. The MPC has repeatedly emphasised that monetary policy cannot prevent either the necessary real adjustment to new trading arrangements or the weaker real income growth likely to accompany that adjustment. We can, however, support the economy during the adjustment process. In such exceptional circumstances, the MPC is required to balance any trade-off between the speed at which we return inflation sustainably to target with the support that monetary policy provides to jobs and activity. Harry, uh, that was uh, Mark Carney there. Uh, just explain to us, Super Thursday, why is it, has it become such a field day in the city? Well, and wider? Well, um, I mean, the, the obvious point here is we're getting a, an awful lot of uh, important economic data and important economic decisions. And so when you have this confluence of events, of course, the city, when you have so many basically market moving things happening at one point, uh, everyone gets very excited. Now, obviously, the main thing we're looking for here is the decision on interest rates. Now, I think from everything we're seeing at the moment, going back, obviously, what we've just been discussing, the, the oil price, but more widely looking at uh, global growth, it seems at the moment that we're probably likely to have a hold decision. Although what people will be more closely looking for is what it will say about the summer interest rate decision. So I, I think what we could be seeing is a few more hawks starting to push for a, a, a rate rise. But more broadly, what we're going to be looking at is directionally. What, what is the bank saying and the MPC saying about uh, the UK more generally? And, and this is where obviously the, the interest comes in. It'll be the interpretation rather than, I think, the actual sort of probably strict decisions on the day. Callum, as, a, as, a market, as our market watcher, in fact, do you find that the sectors that come most under scrutiny then, is it just the banks or is it the wider financial community when interest rate decisions are due? Certainly, uh, it's the wider financial community of stocks when it when it comes to days as as, as consequential as, as Super Thursday. It's interesting, though, having a brief look at what analysts are saying ahead of next Thursday, most of them expect it but to remain in what they call wait and see mode and hold rates. Some suggesting, like Barclays, for example, that there won't be another hike until kind of November at the tail end of this year. It'll be a year since the last hike, and that's quite telling. Um, so not many people are expecting them to rock the boat next week, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. Emily, in your world, of course, I suppose it's, it's more, it's not interest rates, is it? I mean, the dollar is is probably more important and how it's faring to to the, the companies that you cover, to the energy companies in particular, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, especially the big companies like Shell and BP that we're focusing on at the moment, um, in terms of sort of their, their global profits and, and investment, you know, the, the small change in interest rates in the UK is, is pretty much neither here nor there. But given that the oil price is dollar denominated, it can have a big impact on um, sort of the valuation of uh, dividends of companies who are listed in the UK. Um, and when you look at some of the smaller North Sea players um, who uh, 
um, are operating in in sterling, but get revenues in dollars. And again, that can actually have a big impact on some of them. So yeah, absolutely. The dollar is a bigger factor. Emily referred there to these smaller independent operators. I assume as a sector in the stock market, just flipping back to oil for a moment, that they would be the ones to watch because presumably they have recovery techniques that weren't available a few years ago and therefore they can make big fields still viable, which it isn't for the big companies or they can't be bothered. Certainly. And that's a very interesting field to be looking at on the junior market, particularly at the moment in terms of all kinds of companies cropping up. And it's safe to say that actually the market hasn't quite made up their mind. But like like many sectors on the junior market, it's a very volatile type of stock at the moment. And it can be up sharply one day and down through the floor the next. So it's very interesting to see investors trying to find their way through what is an emerging sector, really. And they're trying to figure out what what, what these stocks are worth. One of the uh, interesting things there is that the cost of exploratory drilling has come down so much now that if you want to back a company which is going to go out and drill some wildcat exploration wells, you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck than you were before because the cost of drilling a well is just so much cheaper. Harry, just a final thought as city editor. You've covered a number of these tiddlers and sometimes they're not what they seem, are they? They end up losing money from not just them, the, their investors, but also for the wider stock market, bringing it into disrepute, one might almost say, in some cases. I think generally the stock market gets more disrepute from it, the larger end than the smaller end. I think people expect uh, to a certain amount of funny business uh, when you get down into the uh, smaller end markets. When it, if you really want to see uh, disrepute, I think you have to really go for the, the big guys. Actually, that's a very fair point, given what's dominating our pages at the moment. I presume we're talking about outsourcers here. Anyway, let's stick with the job team, actually. Callum, we've heard uh, Mayor Sadiq Khan in London. He was talking about, he commissioned a report, I gather, saying that up to half a million finance jobs could be lost. And he wasn't actually speaking about London, I should make clear. He was talking about the country as a whole. Um, Let's just listen to what he recently told ITV's Good Morning Britain. What the government should be doing is making sure that when they're negotiating, they aren't negotiating for a route that leads to fewer jobs, less investment and a real impact on the quality of life of uh, families across the country. People are going to naysay the report they did almost immediately. Has he got a point there? Sadiq Khan finds himself in a really interesting position. This is a guy who's a passionate Remainer who wanted to be Mayor of London for a number of years before he got the job. He obviously got the job after Brexiteer Boris Johnson and had it for a grand total of one month before Britain voted to leave the European Union. So he finds himself in a bizarre position and we've seen that. I think anyone who's been in London over the past year or so will have seen this London is open campaign and it's the three words which you'll see and hear from City Hall officials more than any other. They really want to get that message out to the world and by all accounts certainly it seems to be a relatively successful campaign. But certainly they're concerned about city jobs and this is an an issue and a concern in their minds which isn't going away, mainly because they go to the banks, the banks can't necessarily yet give them firm figures about how many jobs they'll move and so City Hall are getting a little bit itchy about that. But at the same time the banks say, well, how can we know how many jobs we're going to want to move when we don't know what Brexit's going to look like? So there is a whole cloud of that word uncertainty which has lingered since the early hours of June 24th. It's still there and it doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the figures you get on this are just all over the shop. I mean, uh, if you just go back uh, to December, uh, in the space of 24 hours, we had uh, one story saying that fewer than 5,000 jobs would leave in total and another saying that 10,500 would leave uh, on the first day of Brexit alone. The, the, so there is, a, there is something of a, a debate about the number of jobs that are actually going to go. Clearly, the the government is not going to negotiate for a deal that will harm city jobs, but whether it ends up with a deal that protects them is another matter. And at the same time, you've also got the moving factor of that there are other places which are, you know, make, putting up the welcoming mats for the city. I mean, uh, just last month, you had Lloyd Blankfein in his uh, periodic uh, Twitter excursion, uh, <laughs> extailing again the uh, benefits of, uh, of France. You've had uh, this month, you've had um, Morgan Stanley coming out talking about uh, putting pressure on the government to make a decision by Easter. Um, so there's an awful lot of lobbying here. I mean, I think, I think that one of the actual important points here, though, is that actually the, the UK does have a bit of a, uh, a joker in its uh, pack on this one, which is a question of what it's actually going to do post-Brexit itself. So you, you've seen recently the EU starting to put up a warning about whether a, a bonfire regulation in the city. The point being, the thing that worries, I think, probably the the E27 most is, is the potential for the UK to do something like that post-Brexit if it didn't feel that it got a good deal. Now, obviously, that would have huge knock on impacts across the board. But, but the point is, turning London into a offshore centre 20 miles off the coast of mainland Europe is, is the sort of thing that will really be sort of concentrating minds. So as much as obviously we, uh, I think there is a going to be, I think both sides obviously want to deal here, which retains access for the city. There is obviously always this uh, remaining sort of I, don't, I suppose, concerns that if, if the UK doesn't end up with a decent deal, it could embark on something like that. Obviously, Harry mentioned Lloyd Blankfein there. I, I have to say, I just defer to his Twitter feed whenever I want to know what the state of the debate is at, at the current moment. But it's interesting, he did obviously meet with President Macron and said he, they had a wonderful conversation in Davos the other week. So he's clearly in talks uh, with various capitals around Europe to see where Orban might have its European headquarters in in future, it's it's very interesting though. So it, he's he's already called for a second referendum. He's already kind of talked consistently about how there's a tough and risky road ahead as Britain negotiates its departure from the European Union. He's obviously not the only chief executive in the city who would who, who is crying out for a second referendum. They're not going to get it though, or they're very unlikely to. And I think the. <laughs> Where we are with jobs at the moment is they've been crying out for some kind of certainty, some kind of clarity for, what, just over 18 months. And I think what the government has woken up to, probably since the general election last year, when you speak to people in the city on, on that side and when you also speak to officials in Whitehall, they seem to have really woken up to the fact that jobs aren't going to move necessarily once this deal has been struck once this deal has been decided. Many jobs may move before then because the banks have tired of uncertainty and they're concerned about the worst possible case scenario. And so it certainly feels like that the timeline is brought forward. This could happen. There certainly could be jobs that could be moved this year rather than next year, two years time, three years time. And I think the government's now woken up to that. I guess, as, as Callum says, the timescale is, is key for all these predictions. But I mean, you, you may have some people moving preemptively. On the flip side, you're going to have a lot of companies who, who, who will be waiting to see the details of the deal. As Harry says, there are so many unknowns about 
the shape of it on, on either side. And so, you know, you see lots of Brexiteers who want to, to seize on the fact that we haven't lost all these jobs already. Well, that, that's because it hasn't happened yet. And, you know, we, it may take some years after the deal goes through for you know, jobs to trickle away. And also for, you know, for people who are taking investment decisions, if you're going to start up a new capital for, you know, one of your new divisions, where are you going to be putting that now? Perhaps you're going to be thinking carefully about not putting it in Britain. Yeah, and it should be said that obviously, uh, on, on the one hand, you've got Brexiteers saying, oh, well, the economy hasn't crashed and oh, well, we haven't lost thousands of jobs already. On the other hand, you've still got very prominent people in the, in the, in the former Remain campaign now seizing upon various different examples. Obviously, there were various leaks of government assessments of the economic impact of Brexit, which emerged this week. And you had various prominent figures within that campaign saying, aha, we said it all along. And then, of course, that infuriates the Brexiteers who, who say, hold on a second, we thought, we thought this was going to happen according to you, this was going to happen on June 24th in, in 2016, let alone we're now in 2018. This economic assessment is talking about the years to come. So you do kind of look at this debate and think, I think we had this. I think we had this in the run up to June 23rd, let alone, well, we're now in early 2018 and people are still fighting about the possible impact of Brexit. Obviously, we have no idea what the long term impact will be. But I think maybe this debate could be improved by people waiting for the calm figures to, to emerge. Well, I can't think of three calmer commentators than yourselves. That's what we need. Anyway, thank you all very much. And that's about it for now. But uh, watch out for those BP results that Emily was talking about and others due to report, including Tullow Oil, Rio Tinto, very appropriate, and GlaxoSmithKline, which should need something to calm down. There's all that and the other news and analysis on your phones, tablets, and in the paper. And if you'd like to become a subscriber, just go to thetimes.co.uk. You can also then receive our daily morning and lunchtime business bulletins. If you want to hear us weekly, do subscribe through iTunes. It makes it so easy. And my thanks in particular to Callum Jones, Emily Gosden and Harry Wilson. They're on Twitter. Please join us again next week and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.